Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at the 33rd and concluding class of uh, what I think was a remarkable uh, four-month, twice-a-week study of jhana meditation. And I think that um, the Buddha's only meditation method that he ever taught deserves uh, an in-depth development. Uh, those of us that have stayed through, uh, stay through is not the right word, that have came to uh, all or most of the classes, I uh, do have a deeper understanding of the simple practice and how powerful it is. And so um, Buddha teaches jhana meditation as one factor of the Eightfold Path that is necessary for the development and integration of the other seven factors, meaning we cannot practice right view, uh, right intention, certainly right speech, right action, or right livelihood, and the rest of the Eightfold Path, unless we have control of our minds, that is first apparent in our speech, our actions, and what we do for a living. We'll first apply it there um, and then continue because that's life is a relational experience. We understand ourselves with a well-concentrated mind and how we're um, reacting or responding to the world around us. And so those four foundations of mindfulness, being mindful of the breath and the body, First, being mindful that feelings and thoughts and thoughts attached to feelings and emotions, they will arise and pass away. The Buddha doesn't teach jhana to eliminate our own humanity, meaning eliminate the ability to feel or to think or to think about our feelings. That is part of being a human being. But the Buddha taught how to develop a well-concentrated and right view in our relationship to our own humanity as our humanity comes through the sixth sense base, our feelings, including the sixth sense of that base and our consciousness, our thinking. So everything that, that the, constant, it, the foundations of mindfulness are applied to is us directly in this moment. There's no application of mindfulness that is outwardly expressed. That's mindless. So we, are, we learn to be mindless of these things that are... Uh, obstructing us or distracting us away from the Dhamma and to be mindful of what? The breath and the body. So anything else in that sense is a distraction. And so this concluding sutta, the Simsapa Sutta, and it's one of the, the shortest that I think the Buddha ever gave and certainly the, that we teach here, um, is all about the simplicity. And so the, the setting is set in the sutta, but you can easily see how the how the Buddha was teaching 2,600 years ago exactly the same thing that we're teaching here because he knew, he knew the importance of keeping it simple and keeping it well-focused. In the sutta, the Buddha references that he has knowledge that is outside of the Dhamma, and he doesn't teach that for, the, for that specific reason, that it doesn't relate to the Dhamma. And the Buddha is not talking about supernatural powers where some traditions will use that one line saying this is where the Buddha is um, hiding his Buddhahood so that only Buddhas who are able to somehow transcend humanity 
can be called awakened. The Buddha never taught anything that would take us out of our body uh, and out of our minds. He taught us to be mindful of, of the four foundations of mindfulness, to unite our mind and our body and understand what that means moment by moment as a human being. Anything else that the Buddha knew. Now, remember, he grew up um, prince in his father's kingdom. So he knew all kinds of things. He knew how to, how to repair a chariot and how to throw lavish feasts. And he knew how to, how to um, he likely knew how to read, uh, but he didn't teach anything except the Dhamma because it didn't relate to the Dhamma. So he didn't even get in, into commiserating conversations um, with others in the Sangha about stuff that had no relationship to the Dhamma. Remember, he taught us over and over again. When we come together as a Sangha, we speak only of the Dhamma. In other words, as we're interacting with each other, we are interacting within that framework. And so we're always practicing the Dhamma in that way. That is the importance of that third refuge of the Sangha. Of the sangha. Okay, Simsapa Sutta, after that long introduction. The simplicity of the Dhamma. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying with a group of disciples in a Simsapa forest in Kasambi. He reached down, picking up a handful of leaves. He then asked those gathered, what is greater in number, the leaves in my hand or those in the trees? Now, again, this is such a, um, to me, a, a poignant sutta because it's just describing what the Buddha was like as a human being and how he taught. He taught this very simple and direct way. The disciples re replied, the leaves in your hand are few. The trees have many more. The Buddha then said, just as the leaves and the trees are more numerous, the things that I know from direct knowledge are far more numerous than what I teach as my Dhamma, like we all know. And we all have different um, understandings of things. Jen is an excellent yoga teacher that, and there's a talk on the website about how she was able to separate or continues to separate her yoga practice from her Dhamma practice and, while gaining great benefit from both. And that's an example. So, so Jen doesn't teach her knowledge of yoga, even though it's valuable to her, because she understands that it's unrelated to the Dhamma. And again, the Buddha had all kinds of knowledge that he didn't bring into the Dhamma. The Buddha says, the reason I do not teach these other things is that they are not a part of my Dhamma, they are not related to my Dhamma, and they do not support the principles of a life integrated with the Eightfold Path. These other things do not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to calm, to direct knowledge, to cessation, or to self-awakening. So Siddhartha, at the age of 26 or, or, or later, could have easily taught how to put on lavish, lavish parties. But he didn't. Why? Because, and it may have come up, it may have been valuable when he was um, teaching the more wealthy people. But it was simply irrelevant to his dhamma. And so he did not teach it or anything else. The only thing the Buddha ever taught for human beings to develop is this. These other things I do not teach because they do not lead to unbinding, in my words, from views ignorant of Four Noble Truths. And then he says, I teach Four Noble Truths. The truth of stress, this is stress. The truth of the origination of stress or understanding it, this is the origination of stress. I know where it comes from and I know how it arises and passes away. The truth of the cessation of stress, meaning that we actually have that experience of the cessation of stress, excuse me. And so that 
um, third noble truth uh, might seem like a truth that is apparent and relevant in the future, and it never is. This is the cessation of stress is the fourth noble truth, meaning understand it in this moment. And we understand it through the four foundations of mindfulness. Every time that I sit in meditation and I first become mindful of my breath and I've united my mind and my body and I notice that a feeling and a, or a thought attached to a feeling arises. It might be something that occurred during the day or something that I might be expecting tomorrow. And I remind myself, this is not me. This is not mine. I take a breath. Because it's just a thought that's distracting me. It's not something real. It's something that's occurring in my mind and has no other basis in reality save for how I think about that thought. And I'm in complete control of it instead of my, my thoughts controlling me through feelings and thoughts and thoughts attached to a feeling. So in meditation, I simply take a breath. And on that exhale is the cessation of stress, isn't it? It's the third noble truth. And we experience it in every breath in jhana meditation and every mindful breath off our cushion. We're experiencing the awakening process each and every time we're mindful of our breath and our body. And as we all know, especially through this 33 class structured study, this is the key, isn't it? By simply being mindful in this moment that all that there is is my breath in this one thought. This is the cessation of stress. Again, be mindful that we experience it each and every moment in Dhamma practice, excuse me. And I spent 15 years or more, I can't remember if I should think more about it, but never ever hearing anything. I heard maybe two or three times in all that time, someone mentioned the Four Noble Truths and maybe the Eightfold Path. Nobody ever taught it. And certainly no one ever taught it at Third Noble Truth, that we experience it right here and right now, the cessation of stress. And I think every one of us has talked about the practical applications of this off our cushions. This is what the Buddha is talking about, recognizing it, understanding that you're experiencing it. And then he says that, that he teaches these four noble truths, including the truth of the Eightfold Path that develops the cessation of stress. It is the Eightfold Path that we integrate through, through concentration. Then he says, this is what I teach. I teach these things because they are related to my Dhamma and they support the principles of a life integrated with the Eightfold Path. These things that I teach lead directly to disenchantment, to dispassion, to calm, to direct knowledge of what? Of cessation and to self-awakening. This is why the Buddha teaches, for, and this is the only reason, to directly lead to disenchantment. Disenchantment from what? Disenchantment being enchanted with the establishment of me in the world and how best I can do it. And in some cases, how best can I do it to fool others that it's really not me? There is stress. Through this path, we directly experience this passion meaning withdrawing our passion for eye-making in this moment. And in so doing, it leads to calm. It leads to direct knowledge. Not through the knowledge that we're teaching as Dhamma teachers, 
through experiential knowledge, which is the only knowledge the Buddha ever cared to teach, the hephesiko. We must come and see for ourselves. Then the Buddha says, these things that I teach lead directly to unbinding from views ignorant of Four Noble Truths. So if you're, if you're caught up in something and you're confused about whether it's Dhamma practice or not, ask yourself that one question. Is what I'm holding in mind in this moment leading to unbinding from truths ignorant of Four Noble Truths? There's only four. And then the Buddha says, this is why I teach these things. That's it. That's the only reason he teaches these things and the only reason that we practice for dispassion, this passion, <clears throat> for disenchantment, for calm, for direct knowledge in this moment, not for yesterday, not for tomorrow, in this moment. And in this moment, the Buddha teaches, this is your practice, understanding stress. Let me go back. Does anybody think as I'm reading this that you can't do what the Buddha is asking us to do as our practice. So this is your practice, understanding stress, understanding the origination of stress, experiencing directly the cessation of stress and developing the eightfold path leading to the cessation of stress. That's that entire remarkable sutta. Thank you for joining. So let's go online. It's, it is remarkable that we have four Dhamma teachers here at the conclusion of the sutta. So I'm, I'm so glad that uh, Tom and Jen are online and Ram and, and David are here. But we'll start, start with Jeff. Jeff, how are you? Well, thanks. Thanks for the teaching. This is one of the first ones I think I listened to when I, I first came across your, your teaching in Sangha. Um, and it still strikes me as being so elegantly simple. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, 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 this is one of the ones that kind of sustains me. <clears throat> I've been under a little bit of physical pressure, which makes it a little tougher to focus and concentrate. Uh, and this has really been a lifeline for me to uh, bring me back to where I feel I should be. Um, uh, I, I, that's all I've got. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff, for, for pointing out this. This suit is all about the simplicity of the of the Dhamma and how to keep well focused in the Dhamma. And, and I agree. Everybody should read this often, especially if you feel like you're you're getting a little bit away from the Dhamma. So, thank you, Jeff. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, John. <clears throat> It really is simple. And this is it's interesting. We spent, this is our 33rd talk on Shana meditation. And all of those talks are relevant to this. And all of them are really just, you know, flowers on those trees explaining what is meant by the Dhamma. Um, but in, um, in meditation, I think if we can st stick to these leads, to the Dhamma, you can really get to very deep places in jhana meditation. So it really helps us, you know, with wise discernment and regarding the truth, um, relinquishment and calm. And those things, if we maintain these simple leaves, then really can get there. So. 
Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. May I ask a question? Um, putting you right on the spot, but it's reflected in your voice and what you just said. In this moment, you're you feel you are you know you are practicing this, this understanding of stress, and you understand it as it arises and passes away. Yes. Yeah. That's Dhamma practice. And then, you know, in certain meditations, uh, you know, other leaves, of course, keep floating past and falling from trees. And sometimes it's nothing but that, you know, showers of them. But then that's it. That's just part of being human. And um, you just have to just come back to these simple leaves. Thank you. Thanks so yeah, much. Thank you for saying that, because it, we could, um, without the, the proper framework, which is again, why we keep our focus this way, it would be easy, even this practice, to become very rigid in it and think that it has to be one right. Remember, for, for years, I sat in a, um, a Zen meditation sangha, and the posture was much more important than anything else that went on in your mind. And if your posture wasn't perfect, and there'd be 150 people all sitting almost exactly the same. And there was a gentleman, there's a stick up here called the Kayasaka, no, that's not what it says. Painter, right? Anyway, so, something like that. Um, that the, uh, the the meditation master would walk around the room, and he'd whack you with it if you weren't sitting right. And it wasn't it wasn't a, a necessarily an attack. He would um, he would tap you on the shoulder, and you would know that you had to give. It was at that point that you were supposed to give permission to get whacked on your shoulder. And it, again, it wasn't hard and it wasn't vicious, but it was. It still was a. You know, as I think back on it, was that there was a measure of brutality in trying to force you to sit a certain way. And when I finally came across the Buddha's Dhamma, I first was looking for where he teaches us how to sit. He doesn't. He just says, go find the root of a tree or an empty hut. The outside um, uh, appearance has absolutely no bearing on Dhamma. It's what is going on in our minds in this moment. So whether we're, we're sitting or anything else, sitting on a floor, sitting on a chair. Some of us have to lay down when pain is too bad. It's not the best way, but it's still meditation. As long as the method is applied properly and you'll reap the benefits, as Kevin said. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. I'm a teacher, Jen. Hi, John. Hi, everyone. Um, crystal clear. Thank you. I'm just going to listen today. Thank you, Jen. I'm so glad you joined us, and I hope you feel better soon. Dharma teacher Tom. Hello, everyone. Um, congratulations, Tom taught his first class in the UK this past week. Yeah. yeah. Hello. <laughs> um, speaking of which, um, I think I'm going to teach this sutta on Monday. Um, I think it's a really good one to start with because, as you said, it's so so clear. Um, it's a, it has that focus on the four noble truths, which is yeah. the basis for for our exploration of the Dharma. So, uh, yeah, so it's been really really helpful to join from that perspective. Um, I think it also, you know, John will know because I've been checking in regularly with him how busy I've been the last few weeks, and it's funny I've got finally got to a point where I've got a weekend where I'm a little bit free and I don't have anything to do. And I'm now, I, I've caught myself, actually, I mean, this, it, sit, listening to your words has, has helped me to sort of 
realize what I've been doing, but I've been trying to figure out ways to fill my weekend um, with, um, you know, and so the, 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 the analogy of the handful of leaves is really, really, really interesting because um, having been way too busy and then just, you know, almost clearly in need of some a time out and, and um, simplicity, uh, as soon as I have that, I'm now, it, we're, we're sort of conditioned to think, oh no, but I've got to be doing something. I've got to be filling my life with lots of things in order to reach that, that, that well, whatever that end goal that, that I might vaguely have in mind um, uh, for my life. So, so anyway, so it's been quite, quite helpful on that front to be like, no, actually I just need to, I, I just do need for this weekend a handful of leaves. Right. If yeah. I can, if I can dedicate this weekend to the Dharma as much as possible, that would be a really, uh, that would be time very wisely spent. Um, so that's been a good little sort of reminder for me um, um, on on that. Just um, this is a question, sort of, obviously partly for me and for anyone listening, uh, and also uh, as I potentially teach this sutta on on Monday. Um, looking at the words disenchantment and dispassion um now that that might sound a little bit of a drag right to people that are uh, particularly fairly new to these teachings um how would you and i don't think you expanded upon them much just just earlier so i'm just wondering if you could expand upon those two words um and explain why they are um important um in in relation to dharma Good, great question. So the the word disenchantment is the, the counter to being enchanted, which is what we are uh, with the world and ourselves. We become enchanted, we become mesmerized, almost hypnotized um, by our um, greed and aversion to what's occurring. And so we become the enchantment part is living in that fantasy of greed and aversion rooted in deluded thinking. And so to me that the... Um, just explaining the, what disenchantment and enchantment means and how we use that to extricate ourselves from that, um, that, that distracting way of living in the world, of being enchanted uh, with the world. And so the, the um, internal mechanism that leads to enchantment is passion for what? Some would say passion for life, but almost always that passion for life is passion for ongoing eye-making. What can I get out of this, my life? What can I make uh, of myself in this world? How could I spend the whole weekend just doing nothing but the Dhamma? Because I got to be doing something. And so it directly applies to what you're talking about. And the Buddha teaches awakening. And uh, last, was it last week that I talked to Nibbana Sutta? Yes, last class. Nibbana literally means extinguish, as in extinguishing the fires of passion. It relates to, directly to the Anakalakana Sutta that you'll be teaching soon, Tom. So it is, in, those, in that way, perfect words to describe what we're doing in the Dhamma. We're becoming disenchanted by becoming dispassionate in our eye-making in this moment. That might be a lot to explain to people in their first class, but the, the simple way is, or the the easily understood way is just to describe what the words mean in relation to the Dhamma. We become disenchanted with the distress. We become disenchanted with the stress 
inducing qualities of a mind that is distracted towards that, towards the eye, towards eye making, and we address it through becoming dispassionate about our eye making. The counter to this passion then would be calm, which is also included in here in, the, in that description. So we address the problem through disenchantment, disenchantment and dispassion, and it leads directly to calm. So it's all included in this sutta. Um, one thing I would say, Tom, just we're getting a little bit out of our, our gamma classes. Don't get too, um, uh, too deep into explanations with one person. It's okay to say, you know, to explain it as I did and say, if you have anything else, if you're still unclear, let's talk about it after class. Because as you've learned, it's really ongoing Dhamma class that explains these things to other people. Yeah. But you also have to present it in a way that keeps people interested long enough to do that. But there's, again, there's not much you can do but be honest, straightforward uh, as you are and just teach what you know about it. And people will come or not, you know. Um, but I agree, this is a good suit to begin with. And those are those are two good uh, points to emphasize as you teach it. Does that help, Tom? Yes, very much. Thank you. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Now I teach you wrong. Yeah, Tom. I can just see that even in in the original Sangha. The Buddha had to constantly deal with people who wanted to be in on, on all the secrets. Yeah. All those things that he knew by direct knowledge. Uh, <clears throat> and it's still such a major distraction. This we we need to teach this concept. Yeah. This is it's only this, and <clears throat> teaching anything else would be uh, a disservice to to those yeah. who come here. Thank you, Ram. Yeah, in my, I mean that question used to come up almost every class in the beginning. It hasn't because of our we've become much more focused by. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, how about why don't we teach this? And I heard this nice poem, and why don't we chant this? And uh, we should smudge the room before each class. You know, that, that question went on for four or five years. Um, and in the beginning, it would have been, you know, I, I, I could almost justify, well, yeah, let's build the Sangha up by doing all kinds of things, and then we'll get to it. But what would happen then? Everybody would leave because I would have been lying for weeks, months, or years about what we actually teach. So it, 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 we either teach the Dhamma or we don't. And it's really because of what the Buddha says in this sutta and others, that it doesn't work other ways. You know, it, it, it's either pure or it's or it's not. And it's not Dhamma that way. So mm -hmm. thank you. And, I, I, you know, I, I've had the direct experience of this too, because I practiced, um, I mean, there were other practices that I didn't practice, but I practiced a lot of what was out there um, beginning with like the rebirth movement and smudging and visualizations and dancing with wolves and all kinds of stuff. And some of it was fun. All of it was distracting, but none of it did anything to bring me an understanding of who and what I am in relation to the world. And so it was always disappointing and enchanting.
Thank you, Rob. I'm surrounded by people that are still completely enchanted by it. Yeah, and you see, you, can, you see it, and, and it's you can't do anything about it. Right, and, and there's definitely no no cloud coming from it. There's just yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. And how does it work when you say you know you're enchanted? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, most people won't. Yeah. Won't accept yeah so that. I sit in my chair and, and yeah and do what I want to do. That's all we can do. Thank you, Ron. Dharma teacher David. Yeah. You asked a question, and this is my practice. It's not nothing more, nothing less. It's elegantly limiting. And when you understand that, you understand the difference between lesser pleasures and greater pleasures. And the greater pleasure of calm is what this practice is promising yeah. through a little understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And, you know, you can call that simple, but it takes an effort not to get distracted by the things that you want to do on the weekend after a week of Dhamma practice. Well, Dhamma practice is a 24-7 endeavor and that's easier lifting than picking it up on Monday. So thank you. Thank you, David. Yeah, again, we just we emphasize this almost every class, the the importance of keeping the the Dhamma uh, pure and simple. And you hear me say that often, that it it is a very simple practice. Um, It can be a challenge to integrate it at first or for a few years. But it is just this, and, it, and um, I think the Buddha realized how important it was because he emphasizes to keep it focused. How how important a simple Dhamma was to teach to get past this very complicated um, and sticky uh, conditioned mind. And he figured out a way to do it. It's directly through jhana meditation and then integrating the other factors. So, that is the end of this class and the end of our structured study. We begin a structured study on uh, the noble practice itself for 14 classes uh, leading to the end of this year. Uh, not quite. There'll be two super special suttas to close out the year. But we'll finish with meta as we always do. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words in Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. 
Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbound, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace, everyone. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.